Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Patrick Pagliandi. And I'm your other host, Mark Sokolsky. This year will mark the first time in U.S. history that a woman, Hillary Clinton, has been nominated for the presidency by one of the major parties. And come November, she may well be elected America's first female president. Clinton's candidacy comes after more than a century of changes in, the, in women's role in American political life, yet female political leaders still face many hurdles in the pursuit of public office. Joining us today to discuss the history of women in American politics and the challenges that remain are three historians who will ask to introduce themselves. I'm Susan Hartman from Ohio State University, and um, I specialize in American political history and women's history. I'm David Steigerwald, also from uh, the Department of History at Ohio State. Um, I'm kind of a generalist in 20th century history. My areas of real specialty are uh, mid-century up to uh, 1980. And I'm Kimberly Hamlin. I'm Associate Professor of History and American Studies at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. I specialize in women's and gender history in the 19th and 20th centuries. And before graduate school, I worked for pro-choice female candidates and on Capitol Hill. All right. Thanks for uh, joining us today on History Talk. We wanted to start off by talking a little bit about 1920. We're about to hit the centennial of women's suffrage. People made big predictions at the time about how women voting would completely change the dynamics of American politics. And so our first question is, did it do that? Um, Why or why not? So maybe, Susan, if you want to start us off here. It really didn't change national politics until about a half century later. For one thing, uh, as a new voting group, women's turnout at the polls was much lower than men's, and it remained uh, it remained lower until about the 1970s. And that's true of all new voting groups. And then women entered political office very, very slowly. There were fewer than 20 women in Congress until the 1970s. And can I add to Susan's mm, absolutely excellent point too? that while um, political participation and voter turnout numbers weren't uh, dramatic or huge for women, I think symbolically women as voters was a huge, massive shift in our country. And so we saw in the wake of women's suffrage a shift in polling places from saloons and you know places that were kind of male spaces to polling places being churches, libraries, schools. And also the symbolic notion of who counts as a citizen in our country, I think, um, was a big kind of national shift. I'm currently working on a biography of the suffragist who was the lead negotiator with President Wilson in Congress. Her name is Helen Hamilton Gardner. And Wilson appointed her to the Civil Service Commission in 1920, and this made her the highest-ranking woman in federal government. And so in researching that, I I found a huge kind of discourse of female citizenship, what it means for women to be full and equal citizens. So I think symbolically, it was big. Well, can we talk a little bit more about uh, turnout and, and voter participation? First of all, um, as I understand it, the data is really not very good. And only Illinois distinguished between female and male voters. And so um, Illinois has long had a kind of privileged place in the political science accounting of the 1920 election. It does look as though women's participation rates were lower, but how much lower is um, a little bit uh, fuzzy in in the political science literature. And there are other ways to participate, of course. One of the things that a lot of people um, in 1921 were noting is that 
uh, women helped push through the Shepherd Towner Act uh, Act for hygiene uh, with um, expectant mothers and new infants. And um, the press of the day regarded that as a great victory for the suffragettes, an indication of, of women's growing clout or potential clout in national politics. But they didn't renew it. When it came, they realized uh, they passed it, I think, because they did expect that you know that women's vote would be a powerful a powerful block, and it turned out it wasn't, and and they didn't renew it. There were other reasons for that too, but um, that also reminds me, Susan, that um, that declining rates in the 1920s um, were across the board, mm-hmm. and and so um, whatever activism seemed to grow out of 1920 uh, withered pretty quickly. Uh, and that was akin to what was going on uh, with other voting groups. Mm-hmm. I think also that we should mention that, that women did play very active roles in both political parties. Each party had a women's division, and they put in a, a lot of hard work in getting out the vote and getting issues out before the public. And so women were actively involved in politics. I just don't think they made much of a dent in terms of of national politics until about the about the 1960s. That might bring us to another part of your question initially, which was about do women vote as a block? Why or why not? So I don't know if Susan or David noticed that too, but it might also be that women, especially on so-called women's issues, you know, working working mothers' issues, Shepherd Towner, reproductive rights, do not tend to vote. Um, in lockstep for sure, and certainly not as a block. Yeah, actually, I was hoping that one of the things we could talk about is the, the existence of a gender gap or gender affinity voting, because it does seem to be a much more recent phenomenon than, um, than it would be if we go back to 1920. And it, it's, it's primarily these days a phenomenon of unmarried women. I think something like 60, 65 percent of unmarried women supported Obama. Uh, married women, it it tends to divide, you know, pretty evenly between the parties. But but single women really vote heavily Democratic. Is that largely connected at all to why women remain underrepresented in political office? You know, nineteen twenty and forward is that they don't vote as a block and they were expected to. Well, I th- I think you had. Few women can't. You just had few women candidates. Right. Okay. You didn't have a lot of support for running women. Parties were not encouraging women to to run. So I think it wasn't just because women voted in in fewer numbers than men, but there were a lot of other reasons why it took a while. And most women, when they did enter national political office, Congress, or and even the Senate, and even governorships. They literally ent- entered over their dead husbands' bodies. The majority of, of, of women who sat in Congress until about 1950 filled their dead husbands' seats. And a couple of them went on to have political careers of their own, but most of them were placeholders until they could hold an election. Besides having dead husbands, is there anything that early uh, that women who held political office early on in the 20th century that they had in common? The one that comes to mind is that they, of course, had worked in their in their political parties, and they had they had gained some reputation by the work that they had done for their parties. 
they weren't like most men lawyers. I mean, the you know the legal profession is the, probably the most common entry into Congress, but very few women went to law school until the 1970s. So they didn't have that kind of background either. Kimberly or David, do you have uh, thoughts on what sort of women candidates run or or run and win in American politics? Is there something about the structure of American politics that produces a, a certain type of candidate? I'm not sure. I mean, uh, I'm really not, other than perhaps class uh, okay. background. But it seems to me that the partisan uh, associations of uh, of women candidates have been just as divided as as male. Although, of course, now at this point, because there is a gender gap in voting, um, women representatives in Congress, for example, are about what uh, two thirds Democrat. Yeah, so um, we see that changing as the gender gap begins to accumulate in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, but I'm I'm disinclined to pick out particular traits. I, I agree. I'm just inclined to pick out, pick out particular traits as well. And to me, the kind of common denominator in terms of which types of candidates are favored, I think, cuts across gender, and it applies to male and female candidates. And that is people who are good fundraisers and or people who are connected to insane amounts of wealth, either personally or through their career networks. So I think that that, to me, is kind of the common denominator of political candidates and that, you know, it, without meaningful campaign finance reform laws, I think it's hard to really broaden the network and have a more diverse array of candidates and issues, not just in terms of gender, but also in terms of race, class, and ethnicity. And this this is actually a really great uh, transition for us here that we want to know about, you know, what problems does a woman running for president or really any political office in general face that are different from that of a male candidate? I wonder if national security is a particularly hard issue. Um, and maybe once in office, what obstacles will the first female president face? Um, Kimberly, if you wanted to start us off here. Sure. Um, I, I think, um, you know, in the past, a common objection to a woman president would be, oh, well, if women can't be in the military, how could a woman be president and be commander in chief? And I think over the last 5, 10, 15 years, that argument has really lost sway for two reasons. One, male presidents have stopped having military experience. And indeed, in recent presidential elections, male candidates without military experience have defeated military heroes. So Clinton over Bush one and over Dole, Bush two over Kerry, and Obama over McCain. And then the second change, I think, is that women now do serve in combat roles. So this argument that women can't be commander-in-chief, I, I think, I feel, I intuit, I don't know if the other panelists will agree, but to my mind, that one is sort of losing um, sway. So that one doesn't seem as convincing to me anymore, but a, another uh, perhaps more entrenched obstacle that women candidates face is just the deep-seated gendered and sexist stereotypes that we have in our culture, and something I kind of sum up as talking while female. <laughs> it's very hard for women, you know, running for president to sound tough without sounding shrill or bitchy or, you know, any other of the negative kind of words we associate with women's leadership or women uh, in positions of authority. So to my mind, that is kind of a, a, a large remaining obstacle that we have in our culture. An obstacle Hillary Clinton has uh, run into as she's been running. Exactly. Running. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see how she kind of plays that out over the next few months in response to what I can only imagine are going to be, you know, horrific <laughs> attacks by Donald Trump. Follow-ups from uh, Susan or David? I would have um, said it pretty much the, the uh, same way or made the same point um, half as well. So <laughs> <laughs> there's no reason why I should add anything. 
Um, I think I think the uh, another thing that that has to do with the the commander in chief issue is that since uh, since the Clinton administration, we've become used to seeing women as uh, ambassador to the UN, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Navy, and uh, and and so I think the public is is somewhat more accustomed to the idea that women can run foreign policy and they can make military decisions. Do you think that if Hillary Clinton is elected, she will face similar sorts of prejudices, uh, the same sort of discourse that we're seeing now? You know, my hunch is that she's going to be more hawkish than Obama, and so. Maybe there's some insulation against charges of being too soft in that. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I think one thing that um, distinguishes Hillary Clinton from some of the other 14 women who have run for president, and indeed from the um, countless men who have run for president, is that by some estimates, she's the most qualified candidate to have ever run <laughs> for president. So I think for her, the hurdle will be getting elected, mm-hmm. but having already spent you know eight years in the White House, years in the Senate, and years as Secretary of State, I don't think she's going to face that you know sort of steep learning curve that pretty much every other you know incoming president has faced. So to my mind, the the getting elected part will be the tough part, and then the first few months in office, I think, would be much smoother. And I think Americans could more easily adjust to seeing her in that role based on her past experiences. As we're sitting here talking, uh, the image that is coming to my mind is the picture of the inner sanctum of the Obama administration, the security team, watching the footage from the uh, uh, attempt to, to kill Osama bin Laden. And Hillary is right there in the center of it, uh, fixed uh, intently on what was going on. And I think that's a very effective image of her as a, a an important and central player in a very important national security matter. And I'm kind of curious as to whether they're going to use that image for the campaign. I think it's a very effective reminder to people uh, mm-hmm. that she has sat mm-hmm. in those seats. And of those high qualifications. Up, and Patrick's earlier question about what, you know, what were some common denominators in successful pe- female candidates throughout the 20th century, and that hawkish stance um, does definitely, or the sort of a tough stance comes to my mind. So Margaret mm-hmm. J. Smith was known you know, as the first female cold warrior, so even though she presented very feminine with a rose in her lapel and a pearl necklace, she was very you know, hawkish and um, an early supporter, an ardent supporter of the Vietnam War. And then, of course, even Geraldine Ferraro, who was a Democrat, her early slogans were one tough, or I think her first campaign slogan was finally a tough Democrat. <laughs> so I think <laughs> that image of tough but feminine has served women candidates well. One thing that occurred to me as we were speaking, um, an, an obstacle to women, and I, I think this is a particular obstacle to Hillary Clinton, but also a boon to her, and and that is that the husbands of uh, female presidential candidates, I think, get more scrutiny than the wives of, of of men. And while, I mean, while Bill Clinton certainly um, brought many of the things that Hillary needed to win: experience, connections, money. Mm-hmm. He also represents, I think, pretty heavy baggage. Definitely. Um, and. And and this is a, a a particularly extreme case, but I but I do think that that women candidates, th- that their husbands matter more than the wives of men, candidate of male candidates. 
And speaking here of, uh, you know, one historically important candidacy in Hillary Clinton's, um, it comes on the heels of another uh, historically significant president, Barack Obama, who was, of course, elected before uh, we ever elected a woman president. Um, So we have a question here of why do you think it was, quote unquote, maybe easier for Americans to elect a black president before they elected a woman president? Um, And maybe I'd like to throw this to David first to tackle. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question that I don't think there's a – I don't have an easy answer to. Right. I think that that sequence was really a function of the the Democratic primary and uh, a young candidate um, with a lot going for him who out, outran his opponent. And it wasn't a gender-race um, thing to me. It was okay. a, a basic – uh, electoral uh, uh, equation, and so I, I don't. He came at the right moment for for that with specific the right race. talents, and okay. I mean that as much organizationally as as okay, all right. of his other considerable talents. I bet easily that Clinton would have won uh, in a race against McCain. Hmm. Uh, it was just one of those races where uh, Republicans were not going to win, given the the uh, economy and the war. I do think there is a, a larger historical precedent, though, for. Um, African-American males receiving rights before females, either white or black or other ethnicities. So, for example, I'm thinking about uh, the ways in which women's rights grew out of the abolition movement in the 1830s and 1840s, and in particular, the debates over the 14th and 15th Amendments, which enfranchised African-American men but not women, and how reformers, you know, for many, many years debated whether or not this was right. And many reformers argued that it should sort of be one for all, all for one, African-American men and women and white women all together to sort of write what reformers saw as the, the, the wrongs of the Constitution as initially written, and that did not come to pass. So I think there is some historical precedent for um, our nation being more, it being easier to imagine men in terms of leadership and citizenship roles than women, regardless of race. That's a, a good point, and I want to go back to the issue of military service. Uh, historically, Military service has been a very important means, bridge for non-citizens, people without votes, to secure the the ballot. It was the case for um, poor white men after the War of 1812, and that opened up the suffrage to universal manhood. Um, so the the absence of women in the military, I think, bears in that that issue too. And is that maybe connected to that African Americans have often voted as a as a block more so than women have voted as a block when we talk about you know nineteen twenty and afterwards? Well, I mean th- that is true, um, but I just think that the circumstances in two thousand and eight were very very special. Mm-hmm. I think that well the commander in chief issue again troubled. Clinton's campaign when she was trying to appeal to the Democratic Party. You know, on the one hand, she had to be a strong foreign policy leader. But on the other hand, she had voted for the Iraq War, and most Democrats opposed it, and Obama had not. So she got caught into that issue. Obama was much better organized with the Netroots organizing. And I I think he appealed to a powerful sense um, among many Americans that, you know, that this would be a step toward toward racial redemption or 
to you know getting behind the the racist past of uh, of, of our country, and uh, so I I just think he had a particular appeal that was that was really overwhelming. Um, so I, I think the particular circumstances are probably more important than who came first or why a black man came right. first. Right. Now, there's been a sort of backlash, right, especially in 2010 against Obama and kind of what he represents. Do you think that if Clinton wins, there will be a similar backlash? It's my guess that she's not going to have things easy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I don't see, I really don't think the Democrats are going to uh, break up the Republicans' control of Congress. So Mm -hmm. she's going to have the same uh, obdurate opposition as Obama has had to face. Mm -hmm. I think she'll have slightly better skills. At working with Congress. Oh, interesting. Than, right. Because of our experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, when we take it in a different direction, many other countries in the world uh, have long ago elected a female head of state. Why has the U.S. been relatively slower in this regard? Well, first of all, I, I think we, we should remember how stunningly behind the United States is. You could count 15 major nations where women have been heads of state. I, I looked this figure up. If you look at the percentage of women in the national legislature around the world, the United States ranks something like 97th. And, oh, wow. you know, just in terms of female representation in, in uh, parliament or Congress or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, whatever it's called. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons, but, but one of them is our particular political system in a parliamentary system, women do a lot better because they have to prove themselves to us to the party, to party leaders, and they can do that pretty easily. They don't they don't have huge national campaigns on television. Oh, that's an interesting. Point. In order to win a nomination, um, a lot of countries have uh, established some kind of quota system. In most of the European countries, the parties themselves say, well, a certain number of our candidates should be should be female or a certain, many of them it's neutral, a certain, you know, a certain number, or a certain percentage should be male or female. I think also that in a lot of other countries, they have multi-candidate districts so that it's not just two people running against each other for a seat in the parliament, but there'll be a district and there'll be maybe four seats or six seats. And you'll have a slate of candidates, usually proposed by the party. So the party is doing the nominating. And voters seem more likely to vote for women when they're voting for a slate, when they're picking four or six or five candidates rather than one. Just to build on what Susan was saying, I think another um, interesting point of contrast between the U.S. and the EU countries in particular that might help explain or help us understand the glaring um, lack of women in higher office in the U.S. is in addition to the sort of um, equity measures that other countries have put in place, other countries in the EU have maternity leave, paternity leave, state support for childcare, corporate culture of, you know, support for working mothers, working fathers, 
And the U.S. really stands out globally in, you know, a huge lack of support for working parents and working women in particular. And, you know, a whole spate of books have come out recently. I'm thinking of Anne-Marie Slaughter's work, Overwhelmed, Lean In, that document how over time this is a huge obstacle to women. We don't have women presidents or as many senators or CEOs because, you know, a woman's mind is like, I've got to prepare for my meeting, go to Target, get the diapers. Who brought the lunch today? You know, we don't have a, <laughs> a, a, a space or a time to really grow as CEO level or senatorial or presidential level candidates when our culture, our government, our corporate offices aren't designed to help working women and working mothers in particular succeed. And to my mind, that's a, a glaring contrast between the U.S. and other nations in the world. David, you want to add anything? Well, all I have is a, a recent anecdote. So I had a group of students touring the Bundestag in um, late May, and we had a woman who was guiding us around. The guides there are actual employees of members of the Bundestag, so they're not docents or, or uh, just uh, casual folks. And she kept needling uh, our students about the absence of women in the oh, uh, U.S. government. And they, they, uh, they got defensive enough that the student who I know is the most conservative one of the bunch said, oh, well, looks like we're going to have a, a woman president this time. So, mm. <laughs> uh. so the word is out. <laughs> I, I also wonder about the nature of our political campaigns. In, in most other countries, they're compressed you know, they take two or three months, and, and and there's a tendency to focus on the issues that are being discussed, the, the platforms that are being defended. And I, I think with such long campaign periods, with the huge importance of television and the media looking for their stories, that there's just too much extra time, you know, to talk about pantsuits or hairstyles. <laughs> right, right. Um, or if they're shrill when they talk right, ever. Right, right. Yeah. Or the, mm-hmm. or the, in 2008, the Hillary cackle. Right, um, right. So, so I think the nature of our campaigns probably also has something to do with it. Um, so we'd like to ask a, a final question here as we move in the last, our last few minutes. Um, and we kind of like to ask about where we go from here. So what one or two issues would you like to highlight as being particularly important to this election cycle, um, given what we know about the history of women in American politics? What would you like our listeners to kind of go, go away with uh, to pay attention to here? Um, and Kimberly, if you'd like to start us off here. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to look forward and also look back because, you know, you've asked historians to prognosticate and that's <laughs> not our specialty, right? That makes us very uncomfortable, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so in my answer, I'm hoping that um, the turning point that we see is a turning point in discussions of female candidates and also women in general in terms of how do we evaluate them and especially their looks. So the historical tidbit I want to leave you with is that the first Miss America pageants were actually started and I think became popular, as I've argued elsewhere, as a backlash against suffrage. And so the first Miss America pageant took off in 1921. Well, and everyone huh. And the first Miss America was 14. Her name huh. was Margaret Gorman. She's the youngest and smallest Miss America on record. Huh. She was, um, you know, barely five foot tall, barely 100 pounds. And Samuel Gompers and everyone declared, wow, this is exactly the sort of woman. Non-threatening. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so 
it, I think it's a sort of an interesting bookend, and in some ways it's you know, eerily fitting that our first major party female nominee is running against a man who is, <laughs> among other things, a beauty pageant owner and beauty pageant mm-hmm. impresario. So I'm sort of hoping that this can close the lid <laughs> on the idea in our country that the ultimate symbol of women in America is how they look and that the best way to evaluate women is when they are wearing their bathing suits. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that Hillary's victory will be mm-hmm. uh, an end to that. <laughs> All right, uh, David, and then Susan can have the last word. Uh, just uh, I agree that the best thing that could come out of this is the normalization of women candidates at the okay. highest level. I can only second that. All right. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, that's great. All right, we'll, we'll wrap it up on that note. Uh, thank you to our three experts today. Kimberly Hamlin is Associate Professor of History and American Studies at the University of Miami of Ohio. Susan Hartman, Professor of American History at OSU, and David Steigerwald, Professor of History at OSU. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk Podcast was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Badiandi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thanks for listening.